Well, I want to welcome you guys to the 2020 COVID-19 edition of Band of Brothers. I, I know all of you guys are sick of watching me on video, and I, I'm not that excited about having to record yet another series on video because I miss seeing you. I miss looking out into the audience and seeing guys asleep at the tables, especially at the morning sessions. But in lieu of that, this is what we have to do. And I'm just uh, grateful that we have the opportunity to put these lessons online and make them available so you can watch them and hopefully that you can get together with your table and discuss the questions at the end of each of these lessons. But we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're going to do the Gospel of John. I've called this series, Love Divine, the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So we're gonna take a look at the Gospel of John, but we're gonna do it over two semesters. So we're gonna cover half of it in this semester, and then we'll carry it over into January and into the spring. And the reason I'm doing that is because this book is so jam-packed with information. I originally was gonna to try to do it in one semester, and the more I tried to make it work, the more I realized I was gonna to have to leave so much unsaid that it really wasn't gonna do justice to this book. So what we're gonna do is take two semesters. So we'll do 11 weeks this semester and we'll do two, uh, 12 weeks in the next semester. But the reason this is so important is because of all the gospels, I feel like this is the one that gives us the greatest glimpse of Jesus not only in his humanity, but in his deity. And that's the reason I've chosen this particular name for this series, Love Divine. Jesus Christ is the expression of God's love, and we'll see more about that in just a second. But one of the things that John drives home better than any of the other gospels is this idea of his divinity, that he was the son of God. That phrase, son of God, is used repeatedly throughout his gospel. And so he's gonna spend 21 chapters supporting the idea that Jesus Christ was not just a man, but he was the son of God who had come down from heaven in order to do, do the will of his father. And it's an expression of the love of God as we see him on the cross near the end of the book. God sending the son he loved, his only begotten son, to die in my place and your place. An expression of love but it was only possible because he was divine. Without his divinity, his humanity means nothing. And again, we'll see that more clearly as we work our way through the book. Now, for some of you who are new and maybe haven't been a part of Band of Brothers, I just wanna make you aware that, that we have available some materials and, and if you've registered, you should have received these. And, and basically it's gonna be the notebook content that we normally give out, which is your homework. Uh, and it will have homework for every week that we meet. And I know some of the guys do it, some of them don't, that's up to you. It will help you if you do the homework. And so that's gonna be part of what you receive. And then the other part of what you're gonna receive is a very lengthy devotional that I've written on the book of John. You're only gonna get the first half and this is gonna be part of the homework. It's, it's me working my way through the book of John taking more time and going into greater depth than I'm gonna be able to in these lectures. So you have that. And then each week as part of the email we send out on Mondays, you'll get the handout that goes with this series. And you should have already received that by now. If you never do, just let us know. 
You can email me, kenm at christchapelbc.org, or you can email Mitchell Doris. Uh, Mitchell has just started as of yesterday, and he has stepped in because of Chase and Jonathan moving on to other things. So I'm excited to have him on board, and you're going to get to know him better in the days, the weeks, and the months ahead. So let's jump into this. This is the Gospel of John. Now, there's some debate as to whether John's the author or not. I firmly believe that he is the author, but there's no argument over whether this is a gospel. It's the gospel of John. And the gospel simply means the good news. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's one of four gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what are known as the synoptic gospels. And that word synoptic just simply means together, together in view, together in sight. Um, they see things from the same perspective, but they talk about it from a little bit different viewpoint. So it's three men writing about the very same events in Jesus' life from a slightly different perspective and each with a slightly different audience in mind. But they're very, very sim similar in terms of their chronology and their content. But John's gospel is slightly different. While they share the same basic timeline and content, John comes at it from a little bit different perspective. And one of the things you're gonna see is that John doesn't seem to be very interested in chronology. It's not that he plays fast and loose with the timeline, it's, it's that he's not really trying to show a day-by-day -day chronology of the things that Jesus did. He is organizing the events of Jesus' life in a way so that they support his premise his theme. And that theme is the deity of Christ, as we'll see. So is this the gospel of John? Most scholars, most commentators believe it is, but not everyone is in agreement with that assessment. As I, as I said, I believe John wrote this. And one of the reasons I believe he wrote this, there's several evidences of his authorship, but the one I want to hang my hat on for this purpose has to do with this phrase that he uses. This evidence that points to him as the author because his name is nowhere mentioned in the book. Unlike Paul who starts every one of his letters out with his name, we don't have that in this book. And so we have to kind of infer who wrote the book, but there's some pretty strong evidence for it. Six different times in this book, he makes reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So who is that? Who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, if we look at John chapter 13, it says this, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, there's some who argue that the disciple that he, Jesus loved was Peter. Well, obviously it's not Peter just based on this verse alone. Peter's not the one who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That doesn't mean he didn't love Peter, but there's something else going on in this verse. He goes on. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So Peter, and this is at the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal that Jesus had, this disciple who's approached by Peter asks the disciple whom Jesus loved to talk to Jesus about something. And so it's somebody other than Peter. Well, again, that doesn't answer who it is. 
Well, if we jump to chapter 19, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, now this is at the cross as he's hanging on the cross, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So once again, we have reference to this disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is further proof that it's not Peter because Peter denied Jesus and was nowhere to be found. So it's somebody again, other than Peter. And this disciple whom Jesus loved is given Mary, the mother of Jesus, as someone to care for in Jesus' absence. Well, then in chapter 21, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So once again, this is post-resurrection. Peter sees this disciple, this one whom Jesus loved. Well, it still hasn't told us that it's John. But in chapter 21, verse 24 says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, as I said earlier, nowhere in the book of John is John's name mentioned. And so we have to, once again, infer who this might be talking about. We've already ruled out Peter. There are three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to Jesus. They were his inner circle. They're the ones who got permission to see his transfiguration. These were men who were closest to Jesus. Now, we believe that this book was written late in the first century, long after James had died, who was one of the first martyrs in the church. So it's not Peter, it's probably not James, that leaves John. And in this verse, verse 24 of chapter 21, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness. This is the closing chapter of this book. And the author is saying, the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who's giving this testimony, who's writing this book, who's letting you know these things about Jesus Christ, who is an eyewitness to the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the miracles of Christ. And so most scholars believe that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it says he's writing these things. Well, what are these things? What are these things that John is writing? Well, it's the whole book. It's everything he records in the book of John, the gospel of John. Every incident, every controversy, every miracle, every healing, everything Jesus did and said that he records is what he's referring to. But it's interesting that he doesn't include everything. There's no way he could record everything. As a matter of fact, if you compare the book of John to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are so many things that John leaves out. It doesn't mean he didn't believe they happened or that he wasn't there when they happened. It's that they don't fit his criteria for evidence of who Jesus was. And so he tells of no parables. There's not a single parable in the gospel of John, but the other gospels are full of them. So he doesn't tell everything. As a matter of fact, he admits it in verse 25 of chapter 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be, would be written. 
So in other words, he says, hey, Jesus did a lot of things. Jesus said a lot of things. And yet we don't have a record of everything he said and did. Even if you combine all four gospels together, we don't have everything that Jesus said and did. We have a glimpse of his life. And John, because of his purpose in writing, is concentrating his time, his energy on those things that support the theme of his book. So we don't see everything. Chapter 20, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. As I just told you, Jesus did a lot of miracles that we don't see in the gospel of John. And John admits it. But he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Now, just so you know, and many of you may already know this, but Christ is not Jesus's last name. I mean, I spent years thinking that was his last name. I'm Ken Miller, he's Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah. He's the Messiah. So he says, I'm writing these things and the things that I'm choosing to write, I've chosen them so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. Right here, we have the theme of this book, the purpose of, of his writing the book. And then he says, and that by believing that he's the Messiah, the son of God, you might have life in his name. So that's the theme, that's the purpose, that's the reason he wrote this book. And all throughout the book, he's going to drive home this point of the deity of Jesus. Now you may think, so what's the big deal? Well, without the deity of Jesus, nothing he said, nothing he did, even his death means nothing. He had to be God. And John, writing sometime late in the first century, writing to those who are believers in Jesus Christ, encouraging them about what it is they believe, is trying to let them know and trying to drive home and give them further proof that the one you placed your faith in was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the deity of Jesus is huge. It's the theme, it's the whole goal. So when he sat down and began to pen this book, this is what he was trying to get across. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that phrase is used over and over again in this book. And he's gonna support this theme over 21 chapters. And during the next 11 weeks, we're gonna go from chapter one to the end of chapter 10. And we're gonna see how he uses the events in Jesus' life, the words from Jesus' lips to support this idea that he was the son of God. It's the thing that got him in trouble with the Pharisees. It's the thing that confused the disciples. They, they spent so much of the years they spent with Jesus trying to figure out what in the world is this man saying? Who is this man? Who, who, is, who is he really? Is he Jesus from Nazareth? Is he Jesus from Beth, Bethlehem? Is he a rabbi? Is he a prophet? Is he the, the Messiah? Who is he? And John is going to continue to build on the evidence that he is the son of God. It starts in verse one of chapter one. And all of you are probably familiar with this verse, but look at how he starts his book. In the beginning, reminiscent of Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And here's the key. And the word was God. See, he starts out, 
the very first verse of the very first chapter of his book with this idea that Jesus, the word of God, the revelation of God, the logos was God. Now, that simple statement was so revolutionary, was so difficult for Jews to comprehend because of their understanding of who God was. But from verse one till the very last verse of chapter 21, he's going to support this idea. Look at what he says in verse 14 of the first chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Here he's supporting it again, full of grace and truth. So what does he tell you from the onset? He tells you that Jesus, the word, the revelation of God took on human flesh. It's what's often referred to as the incarnation. He took on humanity. He, came, he became a man. It's what we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus Christ, the infant in the manger in Bethlehem. It's Jesus Christ taking on human flesh and representing his father. He's the son of the father. And those two words, son and father, as a matter of fact, I challenge you to do this. Read all the way through the book and every time you see son and father, just circle it. I've done it in my Bible and, and there are so many references to son and father throughout the gospel of John because that's what he's trying to get people to understand. This was not the son of Joseph and this was not just the son of Mary. This is the son of God, the savior of the world. The word become flesh. He was God. That very thought that Jesus was God is what was gonna get him in deep, deep trouble with the religious leaders of the day. It was blasphemy. It was a great, great sin worthy of death to claim equality with God, which is what they clearly heard Jesus claiming and saying that he's God. And it's the reason they wanted him dead and ultimately achieved that goal, putting him to death on the cross. So Jesus was God. Jesus himself says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the father's heart. He has revealed God to us. See, Jesus is God. He is the revelation of God. He is the exact image of God. And, and that's what makes him coming to earth. That's what makes everything he said and did. That's what makes his ministry and his message so powerful. And it's what makes his death on the cross so effective. Because if he wasn't God, he wouldn't have been sinless. And if he wasn't sinless, then he wasn't a sinless sacrifice. And if he wasn't a sinless sacrifice, then we have no hope. We don't have a savior. What we have is a martyr. But see, John's not gonna let that happen. John's not gonna allow us to make that leap. He's going to spend 21 chapters driving home the fact that Jesus Christ was the son of God. I love what Paul says in Colossians, Christ, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He made God visible. He manifested God. He made him known to us so that he could be seen, so that he could be heard. The disciples who Jesus chose walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, slept on the ground next to him. They, they spent three years of their lives with this man and he was God in their presence. He was God become manifest, known, relatable, approachable, and even understandable. 
He goes on in verse 19, he says, for God in all his fullness, everything that makes God, God, all the glory of God, all the majesty of God, all the holiness of God is pleased to live in Christ. See, what makes him unique is not that he was just a man, not that he was a rabbi, not that he was a teacher, not that he was a miracle worker, not that he could walk on water. All of those things are fantastic, but what truly makes Jesus unique is the fact that he was God in all his fullness. God in human form. Chapter two, verse nine, Paul goes on and says, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Now I know how difficult that is for all of us to get our heads around, but if we don't grasp it, we at least need to believe it because it's what the scriptures teach. It's what Jesus Christ claimed of himself, that he was God in human flesh, that he was sent down from heaven. And he's gonna use so many different ways of saying that. He's the bread from heaven. He's the living water. He, he is. He has been sent by God to do a mission for God in the form of a human being. But he's got all the fullness of God dwelling within that body. See, ultimately, if you boil it all down, what the Gospel of John is really all about is the Father. Because had God not sent the, the Son, there would never have been a Savior. And without a Savior, we're still in our sins. So it all points back to God the Father. And that's fairly unique to John's gospel, his emphasis on the father-son relationship and how Jesus, as the son of God, was doing the will of God so that we might become the children of God. So once again, it points to God the Father. See, 50 times that I can count in this gospel, we have a reference to Jesus being sent by God. That's another fun study you can do is just start at chapter one, work your way through chapter 21. And every time you see a reference to him being sent by God, just make a note of it, check it off. And virtually every page has some reference to him being sent by God, having been sent by God from on high. Look at this in chapter five, verse 23. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Who's saying, saying this? It's Jesus. He's saying this of himself. He says, whoever does not honor me, the son of God, doesn't honor the father because God is the one who sent him. God is the one who testified about him at his baptism and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God sent him and God sent him for a purpose. And that purpose was to die on behalf of sinful men and women so that we may, might be made right with him. So once again, how important is it? Chapter five, verse 24, whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Believe him who sent me. Believe that I have been sent by the father on a mission on his behalf so that you might have eternal life. It all points back to God, the father who sent Jesus Christ, the son, with the good news, the gospel of his incarnation, but ultimately his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension. But wrapped up in that is also the fact that one day he's coming back. That's all part of the gospel. 
It's all part of the good news. If you take out any one of those elements, it's no longer good news. And so the story of this book is about God the Father sending God the Son. And the two most famous verses from this entire book are, of course, John 3, 16 and 17. And you're very familiar with them. Listen to what it says. This is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And here's what he tells him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We often leave out the second part of this little passage and we concentrate on verse 16 and we leave out verse 17. But what's really fascinating is Jesus is telling this Pharisee, Nicodemus, that I have been sent by God in order to bring eternal life. But then he says in verse 17, I didn't come to condemn, which is really fascinating because here's the reality. Mankind already stood condemned before God the Father. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, mankind has been under the curse. They have been condemned. They have been condemned to death. They've been separated from God and there's nothing they can do to fix it. So he didn't come to condemn. He came to be light, to reveal God, to show them the good news, the gospel, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come into the Father except what? Through me. That exclusive claim that some people have so much difficulty with. But Jesus Christ didn't make any bones about it. He was the only way. You can't even know the Father except through Him. You can't see the Father unless you look at Him. And you'll never have everlasting life with the Father without faith in Him. That's what this book is all about. The good news of Jesus Christ Love divine. Those two words are inseparable, but they meet at the cross. And the world has a really difficult time with this. I've heard different uh, agnostics and atheists and unbelievers say, the cross is nothing but divine child abuse. What loving father would send his son to die in such a, a horrid way? But for us as Christians, the cross is love. The love of God is expressed through the Son of God, divine. Jesus Christ divine, taking on human flesh and dying the death that I deserved and you deserved. It's a powerful statement. And I love what John writes in his first letter. He says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son, now just stop and think about that for just a second. God showed his love by sending his son into the world that he might have, we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God. In other words, that we earned God's love because we loved him first, that we did some great things for him, that we earned his love because of the way we behave, but that he, God, loved us and sent his son. And don't miss this. He sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, that's what sets Jesus apart. That's what sets Christianity apart. That's what makes the gospel so powerful, but also in many ways to many people so repulsive. 
that a loving God would send his son as a sacrifice for the sins of others, that he would allow his son to die as a substitute for other sins. But see, without that, once again, we have no hope. We have no future. We have no eternity. Well, we have an eternity, but it's an eternity apart from God. But because God the Father sent God the Son, we have hope. He expressed his love through his divine Son in human form. And Jesus died a painful, excruciating death in the form of a human being. And it's one that every one of us deserved. But because we placed our faith in him, we were spared. We were given hope. We were given help. We were given a future. And I love this old hymn from Charles Wesley. Speaking of love divine, he says, love divine, all love's excelling, greater than any other love out there. The love for a a husband for his wife or a wife for a husband, the love of a parent for a child, greater than any of those loves is love divine. Joy of heaven to earth come down. The joy of God the Father, that God would send his son to earth to take on human form. And I've always wrestled with that that sometimes we don't think that's a step down. Sometimes we think, okay, so he became a man. But see, for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to take on human flesh was a major humiliation, a stepping down and becoming like you and I. But he did it. And he goes on and says, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. See, that's what is so exciting about this book is that that's what John is going to prove chapter after chapter after chapter, story after story after story, using the events of Jesus' life to support his theme that he was the son of God who took on human flesh and became love divine. You see, without the cross, this whole book loses its meaning. Most certainly the gospel of John or the gospel of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they all lose their meaning without the cross. If you take out the cross, there is no good news. There is no gospel. As grim as that reality is, without the cross, we have no future. We have no hope. There is no eternal life without the cross. So it's central to John's theme. And it again goes all the way back to chapter one, verse 29. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how did he know that? He's obviously been inspired by the Holy Spirit. He speaks things of which he doesn't even understand yet. And he says, that's the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. I don't think John the Baptist fully understood what he said, but he was speaking prophetically. He was speaking about the the cause or the reason for which Jesus Christ came to earth. Later on in John chapter 12, Jesus says of himself, and when I, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to, to myself. And then he explains, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, all along, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew who he was. He knew why he had come. And he knew exactly what was going to happen to him. It wasn't a surprise. He didn't get it three years into the program. He got it from day one that this is why I've come, that I might be lifted up, that I might be placed on a cross, lifted up 
so that men might look on me and understand that I am the substitute for their sins. I am the atonement. I am the means by which they can have a right relationship with God the Father. He's the sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. And you're going to see that supported, again, chapter after chapter, story after story, incident after incident in his life. I love this from Rodney Whitaker in his commentary. He says, in the cross, we have the revelation of the heart of God, namely his love. See, Jesus himself said, greater love has no man than he lay down his life for a friend. See, the greatest expression of God's love wasn't the creation of this universe. The greatest expression of his love was his son taking on human flesh and dying on behalf of others, doing for them what they could never have done for themselves. And that includes me and that includes you. It's the greatest expression of his love, but it's only possible because he was divine. He was the son of God. He was deity. And without his divinity, guess what guys? The cross has no efficacy. It's totally ineffective. If he was not God, he could not have been sinless. If he's not sinless, his death means nothing. A sinner can't die for another sinner. I can't die for you. I can't die in your place because I have the same problem you do. I'm a sinner. But Jesus Christ, because he was divine and human, those two attributes are brought together and he was able to live a sinless life and therefore become the sinless sacrifice, the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, John is out to prove this concept, this doctrine of the divinity of, of Jesus Christ. It's part of who he is. It's his identity. Without it, he ceases to be who he really is. And what you're gonna see as we go through this book is the disciples, uh, the religious leaders, the common people, we're constantly wrestling with who is Jesus? And you're gonna see lots of references to people believing and not believing, people following and people walking away because they were constantly wrestling with, who is this guy? What is he about? What are these miracles that he does? Where does he get this power? How can he speak and say the things that he says? And so over the course of 21 chapters, he's going to reveal and prove and support and give evidence for the deity of Jesus. Because for his death to be effective, to accomplish what God sent him to do, he had to be divine. And like none of the other three gospels, this is an area that John camps on over and over again. And there's a series of questions in this book that are pretty interesting. And they, they come up at key moments in the text where John brings them up to reveal that people are struggling. They, they see him do something and then they go, wait a minute, who is this? As a matter of fact, that's one of the questions. They say, who are you? They, they wanna know, just tell us who you are. We see you do these things. We're kind of thinking you might be a prophet. You might be from God. You might even be the Messiah that we've waited for for centuries but we're not sure, who are you? We see in John chapter eight, they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Now this is coming from the Pharisees and it's not said in a way that they really are looking for an answer. It's almost a cocky, sarcastic question. Who, who are you? Who do you think you are is a better way to put it. 
They don't like him. They don't like what he does. They don't like what he's doing to their reputation and how he's pulling people away from them. And so they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Who, who are you? Then in John chapter 12, 12, it says, how can you say that the son of man be lifted up? Who, who is this son of man? Once again, the Pharisees are like, who, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? This makes no sense to us. And then finally in chapter 19, we have Pilate asking of Jesus, where are you from? All of these questions are designed to point the reader, you and me, back to the reality of who is Jesus? Where is he from? He's from God the Father. Who is he? He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, living water, the good shepherd. He's all these things. Who is the son of man? He is God who's taken on humanity. And John is going to go out of his way to prove it through 21 chapters of his book. See, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. How much? That he gave his only son. First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then we have also in 2 Corinthians, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In these three verses, we have three important things about Jesus that we need to grasp. First of all, he's his only son. He's the only begotten of the father. There wasn't another Jesus. He didn't have another divine brother. He was the only son of God. And he was fully righteous, fully sinless. There's not another human being that has ever breathed air that could ever claim that. Only Jesus Christ, because he was the son of God. And he never sinned. Fully righteous, never sinned. And it's those three factors that made him the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. So as we work our way through the rest of this book, we're gonna see this theme brought up over and over again. And, and I just wanna read real quickly verses one through 18 of chapter one. And we're gonna unpack it further next week, but just listen to how John opens up his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. In other words, Jesus Christ was part of the creative process making of the world, making of you and I. It says, and without him was not anything made that was made. Stars, moon, sun, earth, birds, bees, bears, you and me, nothing was made apart from his involvement. And then he goes on in verse four and says, in him, in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This theme of light and life is going to be all throughout this book. It's a book of contrasts. It's a book of, of juxtapositions. And we're gonna see over and over again that he is the light, he is the life, he is the source of all things. And he's come to earth in the midst of darkness, shining the light of God's glory in the midst of the sinfulness of mankind. Then we're introduced in verse six to John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is a reference to John the Baptist, not John the apostle. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
he came to bear witness about the light. So once again, we have these references to light. See, Jesus was stepping into darkness, a world marred by and darkened by sin. And he was the light of God. He was the revelation of God, the glory of God, shining into that darkness. Verse nine tells us he's the true light, which gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, didn't recognize him, couldn't see him for who he really was. It says he came to his own, the Jewish people. He was born to Jewish parents. He was a Jew. He was a descendant of David, as we know from the gospels. He came to his own and it says his own did not receive him. His own people, the Jewish people rejected him. He was the Christ. He was the long awaited Messiah and they rejected him, the true light. And then it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, Jesus Christ came to his own. They would reject him, but then he became not just the Messiah of the Jews. He would become the Messiah of the Gentiles as John will show clearly in this book. And what's really important in verse 13, it says, they become children of God who are born not of blood. In other words, not because of their flesh, not because they're born Jew or Gentile and not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but because of the will of God. This is the will of God. All throughout the book, you're gonna have this really interesting contrast between the will of God and the will of man, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But see, since this book points back to God, we're gonna be reminded over and over again that at the end of the day, this is all about God. It's all about his will and his word as expressed through Jesus Christ. So in verse 14, it says, once again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's the ancient of days. He is without creation. He is, has always been. He was in the beginning with the Father. And in verse 16, it says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now catch this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at, his, at the Father's side. He has made him known. So right here, we have this summary of who Jesus was, he was the word of God who came to earth in human flesh and he made God known. How did he make him known? Yes, through miracles, yes, through messages, yes, through claims about who he was and what he had come to do, but most clearly through his death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension and the changed lives that have taken place over the centuries because of that. He has made God known. You see, for John, Jesus was the revelation of God, the, the picture of God, God in human flesh. Again, the incarnation, it literally means in meat. He took on meat. He took on human flesh. He's the living word of God. We're gonna see next week. He's described as the son of God and the son of man. He was both God, man, the God, man what's called by theologians as the hypostatic union. And we'll talk about that later. But this incredible concept of both God and both man, 100% man, 100% God in one being. That's who he was. 
He's the light of the glory of God. He's the true bread of heaven. And he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John is trying to tell you and I in this book. And I love this in John chapter 14. As Jesus talks to Philip and he says, have I been, you, been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's another theme that's gonna come up over and over again in the book is Jesus tells these people that if you wanna see God, you gotta see him through me. If you want a relationship with God the Father, you're gonna to have to go to him through me because there is no other way. And he says it to peasant and he says it to Pharisee. He says it to poor man, rich man, the greatest of sinners, the least of sinners. They all have the same problem. They can't get to the Father unless they go through him. So this is the greatest question in the book of John. Who are you? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? It's the most important question any of us can ever ask. Who are you? And you may say, well, he's my savior. But see, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we need to be able to define that greater and greater. We need to have a growing understanding of just how incredible that is and who he is. So once again, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the things that I've written, are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, life is huge. Not just the good life, not your best life now, but the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to offer, as he states in John chapter 10, verse 10. So each week, what we're gonna do is we're gonna wrap this up with some food for thought, some things that you can think about. Now, some of you are gonna be meeting with your tables and you may be doing it over Zoom. You may be meeting live in someone's home or at a restaurant. But if you're not in a group like that, if, if you haven't been placed in one, please let Mitchell or I know and we'll help you get connected. But even if you're not, find somebody to talk about these questions with. Discuss them, think about them, wrestle with them. So here's your three questions for this week. There are many today who claim to be Christians, but who deny the deity of Jesus. Why would holding this position fly in the face of all that John has written and everything that we're gonna see over the next weeks? So you can say he's a good man, good teacher, moralist, but if you take out his deity, he really means nothing. He was just a good man who died a horrible death as a martyr. But there are so many who claim to be Christians who have bought into this lie. Secondly, if Jesus was just a martyr and not the long awaited Messiah, what difference would it make? Who cares? Why does it matter? See, sometimes we don't wrestle with these thoughts and yet we need to, because it really does matter. And then finally, I want you to read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, my, one of my favorite passages in the scripture. How does Paul's description of Jesus' incarnation make it all the more amazing that he, the Son of God, took on human flesh and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death so that you and I, by believing in him, might have eternal life? Well, that's our first lesson in the series. I hope you're excited about where we're headed. Uh, do your homework, um, read those passages, think about where we're headed 
and I will see you next week. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of John. I thank you that you placed upon him through the power of your Holy Spirit, the desire and the ability to write this incredible book so that we might read it thousands of years later. And my prayer is, Father, over the next weeks, would we become students of this book? May, may we listen, may we read, may we meditate on it. May we look closely at what you're trying to say to you and I through this powerful, incredible book. And I look forward to seeing what you're gonna do in the days, the weeks, and the months ahead as we study the gospel of John. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. See you guys next week.